Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 19. Uh, This morning, we will be picking back up a series we've put on pause uh, for the Advent season. We've been studying through the life of Abraham and his impact upon the world as God's chosen messenger and representative. Right before Advent, uh, just to remind us of where we came from, we are right in the middle of the account of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are picking it up at a very significant moment. If you remember what was going on in the book of Genesis, God had promised righteous judgment, holy anger to be poured out upon this city and upon these people due to their wickedness. We've had the angels of the Lord. They met with Abraham. They met with Sarah. They then go and uh, the Lord reveals to Abraham his plan. I will go into this city. I will see its wickedness and I will bring judgment. And the angels of the Lord go into the city where Lot greets them, Lot welcomes them into his home. And then the men of the city, when it grows dark, they try to murder Lot and violently violate the angelic host. This does confirm the wickedness of the city. It is indeed as wicked as the Lord knew it to be. And so where we pick up this morning, we will see judgment take place. We will see justice done. But at the same time, we cannot forget, we cannot look over, that not only is there justice and judgment in our passage, there's also mercy and hope and salvation. And these two are not in opposition, but these two actually work hand in hand. Justice, judgment, and hope. That is where we find ourselves this morning. And as I said the last time we came to this passage, recognizing this is a very sobering passage this morning. This is a very weighty text, and by God's providence, it's how we're starting the new year. But the Lord knows that this text is for this day and for us, His people. With that being said, please follow along with me. I want to read for us from Genesis chapter 19. I will start in the 23rd verse and read through verse 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. I invite you to please bow with me as we ask His presence on us and before us as we go into this time of reflection. Let us pray. Almighty God, what powerful words to begin this new year. And yet, Lord, we know 
how much your word is beneficial to us, to our minds, to our hearts, to our relationships, to our interactions. And so, Lord, while we come before a difficult text this morning, I pray you would speak through it, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform lives, that you would sober us up as it relates to sin. Lord, that you would cause us to flee it at all costs. And while we're fleeing sin, may we run to you, our only hope of safety, of refuge, of strength, and of salvation. Father, I pray for this time. Would your word go forth? Would you be with us now? In Christ's name we ask. Amen. In one of my favorite theological books, A Quest for Godliness, it's a review of Puritanism by J.I. Packer. He has this section in it where he compares how the Puritans preached the gospel, the gospel of the Puritans, really it's the gospel of the Bible, but he'd say the gospel of the Puritans, or as they preached it, versus the gospel as it's preached today. I mean, he calls it the old gospel versus the new gospel. And in, in particular, he's got in mind broad evangelical church. The broad church evangelicalism preaches the new gospel, whereas he says the Puritans preached what he called the old gospel. And in essence, he compares these two by saying this. The true gospel, or the old gospel, has in mind God. God is the center. God is center in thought. God is center in fearing hearts. God is centered in practice. The point is, and the point must be, God. As we reflect upon the gospel, we reflect upon the God of the gospel. Today's gospel, or the new gospel, he says, is different. He says the new gospel is about us. How can God help us? How can God make us feel better? How can God take care of our needs? It's an inversion. It is getting it backwards. It is putting the emphasis on the wrong place. Not the God who saved us, but how can the God who saved us do for us? And it leads to a lot of the problems you see in the evangelical church today. And I believe that one of the ways we can prevent against this, and I would make the case that we need to worry a great deal about this mindset and this proclamation of the gospel, but I believe one of the ways we can protect ourselves against this is by reading the hard passages of Scripture. I believe that we need to read the tough passages, the passages that we often go, hmm, all right, let's not think about that one too much. Let's zoom on past. We know that these passages are part of Scripture, and we know that they should be studied, but the only way to benefit from the full counsel of God is to study the full counsel of God. And so today we find ourselves at one such passage, a difficult passage, one hard to read, hard to understand. And I say that, and the point of this chapter is actually very clear, isn't it? God hates sin. God hates sin. God hates rebellion. And God has the right and God has the ability to enact divine judgment upon those who fail to fear Him and to love Him. You have to forgive me, this morning in Sunday school we were listening to Edwards and Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and so if you get a little flavor of that today, just know I'm doing it in love, because that's what we need. We need to hear that God hates sin, and that we must flee it at all costs. 
While this may make us uncomfortable, we must understand this if we want to understand the gospel. Because here's the truth. None of us should escape the fate that was given to Sodom and Gomorrah. While our personal sins may look different, we have all violated the commands of a holy and righteous God and justly deserve His wrath and displeasure. Every single one. So, when He does withhold His wrath, when He does not give us what we deserve, when He instead produces mercy and grace and forgiveness and not justice, we should be a people who fall on our faces and worship Him. Law and gospel, justice and grace, working hand in hand, not in opposition, but together. And this is what's on display before us in our passage. Really, we're going to see this in two points, two uh, points of our text. God judges sin. God declares justice. We see this in verses 23 through 28. And then at the same time, we, we must go to that 29th verse. We must reach the pinnacle of the text because there we see salvation comes from and through the Lord. So we have God and justice and wrath against sin and God and mercy and grace and salvation working together, not contrasting, but working together, shown to us clearly from our text this morning. So that is what we will do in our time together is consider both of these truths. Let's begin by thinking about and reflecting upon God and His judgment. And because it's been several weeks, I understand, and if you've taken any of our leadership training, you know that you must take a text in its context, or else you run the risk of misinterpreting it. It would be easy to be here this morning, or maybe your visitor this morning, you're like, wow, they kicked it off hard this year. We did, um, but that's just because it's the next text in line. And so really to understand, to appreciate this passage, we need to understand and appreciate the context of the passage. We need to think about where we are and what's going on and what has gone on. We need to remember that over and over and over again, God's mercy was poured out on Sodom. We know this by looking back just a little bit. Genesis chapter 14, you had that great battle. Remember, Ketaleomar uh, started a battle, five armies, five nations. They go to war. They're worn over land and resources. Um, one of those that lost that battle was Sodom. They were taken. They were held as captives. And Abraham, he sees his nephew Lot taken in this midst, and he says, I will rescue him by the strength of the Lord, and he takes, uh, it's very few men, I think it's around 300 men, and they go and they rescue Lot, and with it, Sodom, and with it, it's king. And so there's this great meeting of kings afterward. You've got Abraham, you've got um, this, this wonderful, mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and then you've got the king of Sodom, and they come together, and as they come together, it is declared, Yahweh is Lord. God is sovereign. He is the one in whom we should hope and trust and place our faith. And that's declared before the king of Sodom. And it does not go heard. And then a third piece of evidence that shows us that God has been very patient, very merciful to the land of Sodom is Lot himself. 
Lot has been living in this city. Now, I would argue that was a poor decision on his part, but he chose it because it looked good for farming. He's in a city of wickedness, and yet he serves as a testimony of what is right and an act of judgment against them for their false teaching. How do we know that? We know that by what Peter says of Lot. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says this, If he, and he being God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot decried their wickedness, their false teaching, their false practice, day after day after day. The people of this city not only had the common grace that's applied to all, which is the law that God placed on their heart as well as the created world, but they specifically had people put in their lives who knew God, proclaimed God, and declared Him sovereign. And so, with all of that in mind, when we get to Genesis 19, we almost have to say not, how rash, O oh God, but what took you so long? We cannot conclude that God is rash. And, and just as a, as a quick aside point, even if we could, remember, God is eternal, so anything He does isn't rash at all. And who are we to say anything God did was rash in the first place? But that's beside the point. God does act in His timing. And really what we've got in our text are two acts of judgment or, or the same act of judgment seen in two moments. The first is against the city and its inhabitants. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Now, there's a few things we need to think about as we reflect upon this section of our text. First, there's a debate amongst the commentators. Some people think that God said, okay, these cities need to be destroyed. We just need a few natural disasters. So, all right, nature, do your work. And fire fell from heaven. That could be lightning. Um, that there was rumble or turmoil, uh, there was an earthquake, uh, that there were uh, sulfur pits, and um, there was gas trapped under the earth. And so God said, go, and then the, the um, nature obeyed. And so it was just almost this uh, divine act of coincidences that came to the destruction of this city. I strongly believe we've got to reject that. I believe we've got to reject that theory and that viewpoint for this reason. Look at verse 24 again. Then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says it twice. Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Whether it makes us comfortable or not, we must come to the conclusion that God actively assaulted the city. God actively, by his own hand, pelted this city with fire and sulfur and turned it upside down. It's not enough to say that God told the fire to fall, but using human terms, it says that He did it Himself. The judgment is total and the judgment is His. God and God alone has the ability and the authority to enact judgment. And if you worship a God that you cannot stomach that, then you're worshiping the wrong God. 
If you would say, my God wouldn't do that, my God couldn't do that, my God would not judge in that way, then you're not reading the God of the Bible. Because God threw down fire and sulfur. Now, why? Let's ask a a few probing questions here. Why? Why fire and sulfur? That's an interesting act of judgment, isn't it? And if we look through Scripture, we, we get a clear answer. Fire, biblically, often refers to judgment. God uses it over and over again, purifying fire. And for the righteous, they're told they'll go through it like gold. And I've, I've, I've mentioned this before in, in sermons past. You know, gold is purified through fire. It's melted down. The impurities float to the surface. They're, they're scraped off, and it goes over and over again, back through, purifying again and again. And so when the righteous go through fire, they're judged and they are purified. They're made more holy. But for the unrighteous, they are burned up. They are consumed. They are destroyed. Psalm 11 tells us um, this when it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coal on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. The Lord hates sin. The Lord hates sinful acts against the innocent. Let fire and brimstone fall. We get a similar message in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, we have this imagery, this, this uh, act of judgment against um, this city called Gog, Ezekiel 38. I will rain upon him and his hordes, and the many people who are with him, torrential rain and hailstones, fire and sulfur. I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Why does God enact judgment? It says right here, I will show my greatness and my holiness. I will be known in the eyes of nations. They will know I am the Lord. Why does God act in this way? So that he would be known. Now, Matthew Henry, in asking this question, he has an interesting conclusion. He takes it a little bit different direction. Why fire and sulfur? Because he's already done it with water. To quote Matthew Henry, God could have drowned them as he did in the old world, But he would show that he has many arrows in his quiver, fire as well as water. It was a judgment that laid all to waste. God used fire and sulfur because he could. He hadn't done that yet. And it shows the totality, the power of our God. And far too often, I'm afraid, far too often we neglect this. We we love to focus on the love of God, the mercy of God, but we do not fear him as we should. And that leads to this important question, why? Why this level of judgment? Why, I mean, looking at at the words used here, why was this city just annihilated in the way that it is? I've been told that if you go here to this day, you still get sulfurous fumes. It still smells of sulfur. Why? And I don't have to wonder, you don't have to wonder why it is so. The Lord actually tells us, 
the Lord tells us exactly why he did what he did. We find it in two places. One, um, chapter 18, of verse 20 of, of Genesis. God tells Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. The nations around them, the surrounding cities, those who visit, those who hear about it, are pleading with God to bring justice upon them. Their wickedness is so great that their neighbors are pleading with God. And also their sin is so abominable. Their, their sin is so vulgar and so violent. And just to remember, and I, I don't want to, to go too deeply into it, remember the report of the angels. The angels go into the city. If you look back up to the first half of this chapter, the angels went to find ten righteous. That's what God said. The deal between God and Abraham, just find ten and we will, we will skip this destruction thing. They go in and Lot takes them in and Lot brings them into their home and nighttime comes and, and one of the, 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 the saddest verses in this chapter it says every man from the youngest to the oldest. Every. That does not exclude any. That doesn't exclude his sons-in-laws that are supposed to be fleeing the city. That does not exclude any. Tried to get into that house. Tried to overcome Lot. Tried to break in so that they might violate the angels. That sounds pretty grave to me. It sounds like when the Lord said this is a grave place, it is true. But maybe that's not enough for us. Maybe we're, we're like, Aaron, you're kind of you're reading into that. I, I'd like to hear it a little plainer. I can actually give it to you a little plainer. Ezekiel chapter 16, the Lord himself, the words of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. And he says this, Ezekiel 16 verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, wait a minute. Haven't we always been taught that Sodom was destroyed for its sexual immorality? Yes. And was that part of it? Yes. But what does Ezekiel say? What do the words of the Lord say? What were their sins? Pride. Excess of food. Now, where was that a problem? Well, the nations around them were starving. The nations around them did not have enough. Prosperous ease. Not only did they have enough, they were considered prosperous, which is to have an excess, and they were lazy with it. And here it is. Here's their condemnation. They did not aid the poor and the needy. There were people coming to them for help, and they refused to help them. They were haughty. And they did an abomination, so I removed them. These were the sins of Sodom. God says with his very own mouth, this is why they were removed. They acted in arrogance. They call, they're called haughty, which is a sense of boastful pride. It's a, it's a pride that not only are you proud, but you let other people know you're proud. Like, look how proud I am. And we really can summarize it with the words of the Lord. The Lord said, I will not bring judgment upon this city if there's ten righteous found in it. Well, guess what? They couldn't find ten. They couldn't, have found, they couldn't find ten. We don't know the size of the city. There, there's great debate. It could be as little as a few thousand. It could be up to 50,000 or even to 100,000. But whatever the case, there were not ten righteous found there. 
Now, that's the big picture. That, that's the, the sin of Sodom. That's the destruction of the city. That's the rationale behind it. And that, that really humbles us, doesn't it? That, that really causes us to pause and take a look at our lives. But God's not done. Because I told you there's two scenes of judgment here. That's the macro. Now let's look at the micro. We have to look at the case of Lot's wife. This is the second judgment, or, or the, the same judgment carried out in a different angle. Remember, the angels tell Lot, save yourself, save your family. Do you have anyone living in the city? Get them out. There's mercy right there. Why? Because he's saying, get out your sons-in-laws, which were the ones trying to rape the angels just a minute ago. Get them out. Because they belong to you, get them out. We'll get back to that in a moment. But they're told, when you leave, when you flee, escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And then a great deal of emphasis is placed on the destruction of the city. Verse 26 almost comes like as an afterthought. It's easy to overlook it. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now again, let's ask the question, why? Why was that so bad? What was so harmful about this action? And I love what one commentator said. Ahead of you is salvation. Behind you is sin and destruction and wickedness. You can only go in one direction, not both. And so in Lot's wife turning back, she was choosing sin over God. She was longing for the lust of the flesh that were found in Sodom over salvation, comfort, and peace that comes from following the Lord. There's no really better way to summarize this better than that, is there? The wages of sin is death. We cannot love our sin and love God. We cannot keep them as pets and get them out when we're feeling sad or lonely or angry. You have to turn toward God and away from sin. You have to run from your sin as if it could catch you if you slow but for a step. We do not take sin seriously in our lives when we do not take God seriously in our lives. Lot's wife represents the danger in all of us. It is so easy as we're running. It is so easy as we're fleeing. It is so easy as we're, we're pointed toward that hope just, to, just for a moment to think, oh, but it was so convenient. Oh, but it was so easy. Oh, but it was so enjoyable. Oh, and it, it is so simple to be inclined to turn back. But God says you must not turn. You must not look back. Look to me. If you take nothing else away this morning, please hear this. The Bible is quite here, clear. Take sin so seriously. If your eye is causing you to sin, cut it out. The Bible is quite clear. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Now, Asterisk, that was metaphorical. Don't go and perform surgery on yourself. But is that to the degree to which we're prepared to deal with our sin? Are we truly ready to do what needs to be done? Might we do what it takes for the sake of our lives and of our hearts? I think it's today, today's the day that many make New Year's resolutions. And in case you haven't or in case you don't participate or you haven't decided, I've got one for you. I prepared it. This year, 
I will strive by God's strength to take sin seriously, to root it out of my life, to stop putting myself in particular situations or being around certain people that make sinning easy and convenient. I would rather run for God than burn in comfort. That should be our desire for this year. That's what each of us should long for in 2023. This is a weighty passage, make no mistake. But we must read the next verse. We've got to get it in its totality. I can't stop here. For not all were destroyed. There was salvation. There was rescue. There was escape, and it comes from the Lord. Look with me in our last part of the text. Really going back to verse 27. We see Abraham standing on the hill. Remember, the, the last conversation we had with him was him and the Lord, him pleading with God, God, if we find 35 righteous, would you please not destroy it? God, if you find 20 righteous, please don't destroy it. God, if you find 10 righteous, please don't destroy it. And the Lord says, because you asked, so be it. It had to have been a very sobering moment for Abraham to look and see the fires of heaven fall. It, it had to be very sobering for him to stand on that hill and recognize God didn't find it. He says in, in commenting on the scene that was before him, it looked like a furnace before my eyes. That's how violent the smoke. Now, really quickly, let me ask a question. Why was Abraham not turned to salt? Why could he look upon the city? Why was it a sin for Lot's wife to look back and not for Abraham? It's a valid question. And the answer is simple, because he wasn't looking back. Abraham wasn't in the city. Abraham wasn't from the city. Where did Abraham camp? With the Lord. Where did Abraham reside? With God. Now, we're, we're not done with dealing with him and his sin. We'll get to that later. He's going to try to sell his wife again. But as, as a whole, as we look at his life as a whole, where is he residing with God? And so for him to look into the city is not for him to look back, it's to look ahead. Also, it's very important that Abraham witnesses this. Why? Because he was supposed to tell others. He was a witness. If you destroy everyone, there's no one to tell what happened. Right? <laughs> there's, there's a joke about that in, in, in great stories and great epics. It's like everyone was destroyed, and it's like, so how did you hear the story? It's like, oh, hmm. I guess that didn't work. Abraham serves as a witness for the Lord for the events that took place. Why? So that others would know and be warned. What were we told in Psalm 11? What were we told in Ezekiel? That you may know God is righteous. And that's a beauty in this passage. It's a beauty that Abraham was given the task of observing, of witnessing this. But I really would conclude, I really would say the true beauty of this text is not Abraham. It's what comes next. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's ask a, a, a question, a vital question of this text. Who saved Lot? Was it Lot himself? Did he choose to follow the angelic host? Well, let's read what it says. I should have marked it. 
Verse 16, Genesis 19, 16. Well, let's go back to 15. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And much like a kid getting ready for school, but he lingered. The angel said, you are about to die, leave. He said, okay, I'll get to it when I can. So what do the angels of the Lord do? They seize him, his wife, and his two daughters by the hand as God is being merciful and brought them out of the city. Lot couldn't even do what he was told when what he was told was to save his own life. The angels had to throw him out. So did Lot save Lot? No. Did Lot seek the Lord in all things? Particularly in how and where he raised his family? He's, told, he's called righteous again and again in Second Peter. He's called the man of righteousness, and yet he raised his children in Sodom. Not a lot of wisdom in that, is there? Actually, Lord willing, if um, next time we come to this chapter, we're going to read about his children and see how that worked out for him. So no, it wasn't even that Lot listened to the Lord. He didn't listen to the angels. He didn't listen to the Lord. So again, we can't credit Lot. So how did Lot get saved? Maybe we could attribute it to the righteousness of Abraham and through his prayer. Because what it says, God remembered Abraham. And so there is something to be said about the prayers of righteous, of those who are righteous, isn't there? Abraham prays for this city and the inhabitants of the city that they would be saved. And who does God save but his own nephew? Abraham didn't pray for that. He didn't say save Lot. He said save those in the city. There's something to be said for that. But no, I would argue it goes one step further. Look at it again. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot's salvation came at the hands of the Lord. And there's no other place you can attribute it. Lot didn't want to go. He was hesitant. He was reluctant. He acts bravely, then he acts in cowardice. The Lord saved Lot. This morning we've waded through a very difficult passage of Scripture. My desire for all of us in light of it, as we think about it, as we reflect upon it, as it settles upon us, is twofold. These would be my points of application for you today. And I pray that you think about these in this, during this week. First, fear sin and flee it at all cost. Hate sin in your life. Really consider this text. Weigh your own sin and humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin. Declare to Him that you deserve this judgment upon you and pray for forgiveness and place yourself at His mercy. That would be my prayer for you in light of this passage. Flee sin. Ask for God's mercy upon you. Recognize that you deserve justice. And then secondly, my second point of application from our passage. Take comfort and hope that salvation comes in and through the Lord and the Lord alone. Listen to His words. Find strength and hope, not in yourself, but in God. See how He brought Lot away from sin and destruction and into a place of safety. Trust Him. Hope in Him. Look to Him. And then one quick bonus point. I said there's two, but there's really three. Pray for one another. Do not neglect to pray for one another. 
Because the text does say, God remembered Abraham. And because God remembered Abraham, he brought Lot out of the city. Abraham's prayer, the prayer of a righteous man, is what triggered the salvation of his nephew. And so we as the people of God, we as a family, must not neglect to pray with and for one another. And as we do so, may we pray for our families. May we pray for our country. May we pray for our church and for the church. Because God hears us when we pray. The writer of Proverbs 3 puts it, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. May the Lord bless each and every one of us in this new year. May His grace be upon us, and may we continue to trust in, hope in Him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's difficult to be called to weigh our sin. It is hard to look at our own lives, Lord, because we are sinners, and we do sin, and our sin is great, and our sin is grave. And Father, at times, it, we need that sobering up. We, we need that harsh reflection. We need to see ourselves in the mirror and fully take in what we see. But, oh Lord, would we not stop there? Would we confess our sin? Would we repent? And would we turn from our sin and turn toward you? That that which we see is not ourselves in the mirror, but our Savior. Lord, in this new year, I don't know what you're going to bring, but I know that we need you. Lord, I know this day that we need you. In this hour, we need you. And so, would you knit us to yourself? Continue to watch over the church. Help us to love one another, care for one another. Laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. For we are all part of the body of Christ. And for those who yet have come to come into the fold, Lord, would this passage, would this day reflect upon them? Would the weight of their sin bear over them? Would it weigh heavy upon their minds and their hearts? Much as it did pilgrim. Until they get to the foot of the cross. They cast it down. And the only place they can find hope and redemption. And that's in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth it pertains. Be with us this day and in the days to come. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.